Alrighty, welcome back to the Jacko Media Podcast. You're listening either on Spotify, Apple Music, or no, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify for Podcasters, which is formerly known as Anchor. Thank you for listening today. It's Monday, May 8th, and it's draft lottery day, so it's an interesting day in the league. Um, I got the draft order and all the draft odd or how they determine the draft lottery odds which we'll get into near the end of the episode it's going to be jam-packed today and yeah so first off i just have a bit of an announcement to make at the end of the show i just want to make the listeners aware that it's not a big thing but as we've grown the jackal media podcast over the last few months we have a bit of a listener base and I like to interact with a lot of you on Twitter and anywhere, basically. So follow me on Twitter at Media, And yeah, so anyways, the first thing I kind of want to get into here is the Boston Bruins. That's my team. They were my favorite to win the cup. Uh, I think they were a lot of people's favorites. I know a lot of brackets got busted um, when the Bruins were out. So the Bruins lose. They are out for good. And what's what's next? What's next for this team is a lot of questions. There are fans who are speculating if certain players are going to get moved, if uh, GM's going to get fired, Montgomery's going to get fired. Like, Montgomery came in, and everybody was saying this year that they're not going to make the playoffs. It's going to be a terrible year for the Bruins. And... I was one of those people, admittedly. I did not think this team was going to do a whole lot come the playoffs, but at last, here we are. The Boston Bruins win 65 games. They lose 12 in regulation and 5 in outside of regulation. And this is one of those records that we may never see get broken again. So, I just want to say, as a Bruins fan, it was a great season. It was just an unfortunate end where your President's Trophy record-setting 135-point team lost in the first round to the Florida Panthers in seven games after going up 3-1. to This was expected, though, because the Bruins, across an eight-game span, they never lost more than three games. And it was almost... A rarity that they would lose more than two games back to back. They, I think, their biggest losing streak of the season was a three-game losing streak. So it did show teams that it was possible. Just a lot of a lot of personal chatter around podcasts like Elliot Friedman's Thirty-Two Thoughts, the podcast with Jeff Merrick, um, Spent and Chicklets. A lot of the big-name podcasts said, like, how do you beat this team more than once in a seven-game span? Because, like, is it going to be possible? And that was a lot of the talk throughout the league. And I was one of the people. I jumped on, and I was like, hey, I don't think this team's going to get beat more than four times in the entire season or in the entire postseason. They choked. Uh, They lost three straight to the Florida Panthers, 
couple of nifty overtime losses. Allmark was reported not to play, or reportedly not playing 100% come Game 7. Jeremy Swayman would take over in net, and it would show a lot of fans like myself that these, the decision to play Swayman came way too late. Jim Montgomery addressed this with the media. He addressed this personally, and yeah, it was an unfortunate end to a great season, and hopefully next year, not run it back, but I think this is a team that can learn from their mistakes and do something big, because as we're seeing with the Florida Panthers right now, which I will get into in a bit, they are doing quite, quite well, and they knocked off the President's Trophy record-setting team of the year. They were also the President's Trophy winner last year, won in the first round and got swept in the second. And it looks like this year will be the opposite for them, where they're going to win in the first round and sweep in the second. I put a tweet out last night saying that the Florida Panthers may be the Stanley Cup champion because Toronto is nowhere to be seen at the moment. But like I said, I will get into this a little bit more later. And speaking of the Leafs, just to kind of pick this up, one of the biggest what-ifs and storylines of the playoffs is, like, what's up with the refing? And there, there are two different things Two separate things, actually. Or no, my bad. There are three separate rec um, refereeing things that I'm going to talk about. The first is, are the uh, refs like biased against the Leafs? And my answer to that is no. Wes McCauley has a... Whenever he faces the Leafs in the playoffs, the Toronto Maple Leafs have a playoff record of zero wins and nine losses under the veteran NHL referee Wes McCauley. That is a stat via scouting the refs on Twitter. They are making sure to update this. And one thing that I find very interesting is their drive to kind of push themselves into a position where they are not only playing well, but they aren't playing up to the winning standard. You are getting all the help from the guys around, like your depth players, your physical players, but it's time for the big four to show up. And like I said, I'm gonna get into that a little bit later. I keep kind of giving you a bit of preview here because I'm antsy to speak about it, obviously. And when you have a referee with this kind of record, and especially with kind of some of the reports that came out yesterday, is I don't think that referee should be in when there's so much hostility from the fans. And speaking of hostility, Wes McCauley's family, it was reported through a league source that McCauley's family was threatened, or not just threatened, they received death threats. After the Leafs' Game 1 loss against the Tampa Bay Lightning in the opening round of the 2023 NHL playoffs, this is also via scouting the refs on Twitter, and first off, I would say is, if this was a true uh, thing, the league would remove Wes McCauley from refereeing the Leafs' games for the remainder of the Stanley Cup playoffs. 
I'm also not saying that it is false or anything by that mean, but it's just a little skeptical that all of the sudden it's been it's coming up this way. And it's unfortunate. I understand the how much tension there is in Leafs Nation right now. Uh, Leafs fans are dealing with a lot of hurt. They lost their rookie, Matthew Nyes. And now you're in a hole in the playoffs. And Wes McCauley, he, you've lost nine times and haven't won once when he's refereeing your playoff games. So it's unfortunate. But I don't know. I don't know what we're going to be doing here. So, um, like I said, Wes McCauley, if he was getting death threats... Is I think the league would have removed him from that situation, which is the best uh, cause of action, in my opinion. I also don't think that the league would put Wes McCauley in a situation where he was being threatened by fans of this one team. So I'm kind of reiterating, I know, but I don't. I, I see both sides, but I don't think it is as likely as we think it is. Even if, like, it, if it is true, it is reprehensible. Like, it's so bad. It is such a terrible thing to do to a guy who is making a paycheck. I understand, yes, you're working at the pro level and whatnot, and fans get out of control, but this is well across the line, and it makes the whole fan base look bad, so... That is kind of my thoughts on that. And once again, speaking about the refs, the Leafs took, or the Leafs drew zero penalties last night. The Florida Panthers, who were notorious in games one and two for receiving a ton of penalties, got nothing last night. They got zero penalty minutes. And this comes after Paul Maurice's comments is how his team is going to be in the box more and all this stuff. So it it begs the question of what's going on with the officiating and how does this team that accepted that they're going to be on the penalty kill more go to a clean game when it was very clearly not a clean game. There was Aaron Ekblad pulling guys down, mugging Michael Bunting in front of the net for poking a loose puck and just a ton of other extracurricular activities that should have been penalized on both sides. I'm not saying that Toronto should have gotten a power play out of it, but there were still some plays that happened that make you look at it and say, okay, I don't know what the league is doing here. I don't want to know, but it's raising an eyebrow all across the league. And yeah, the last team to record zero penalty minutes in an NHL playoff game versus the Toronto Maple Leafs was the Boston Bruins in Game 6 of the 1951 Stanley Cup semifinals. Semifinals was because up until about the 70s or so, there were not more than four rounds in the, or more than two rounds in the playoffs. It was a you win your first round and then you go to the Stanley Cup final or the Stanley Cup semifinal, I guess. In this case, that it would be. So, like I said, it's going to raise an eyebrow for officiating. And I hope officiating's kind of under more of a lens. Like, it's, I hope it's more looked at this year. And, yeah, speaking of more playoff stuff, 
How long will Leon Dreisaitl's reign of terror for scoring last? And I would say that Edmonton will not uh, take their foot off the gas. They play the Vegas Golden Knights tonight uh, for Game 3. Vegas has only lost two games and have won five. Whereas Edmonton has won five and lost five. This is more do or die for the Oilers in my opinion. Because Vegas Golden Knights have consistently got it done. Yes, they played the Winnipeg Jets who weren't a great playoff team this year. They didn't have what... And what it, they didn't have what it uh, they didn't have what it needed to take to beat the Vegas Golden Knights, and that became apparent in their double overtime loss. Even after they rallied back, they had no pushback, as their coach mentioned. And there's just a lot of factors that are kind of falling into place for the Winnipeg Jets that are all of the wrong factors, and we're seeing this more and more. So. Yeah, um, Dreisaitl has scored 13 goals in the postseason so far, and in this series alone, they've only played two games, and Dreisaitl scored four in his first game and then two last game, and yeah, he needs six more goals to tie the postseason goal-scoring record of 19 and seven goals to break the record. Basically, if they go... Uh, five more games in this series, and Dreisaitl scores one game or one goal a game, and they advance. He'll be in good contention to break this record. I've oh, Reggie Leach is the player, and Yari Curry is the other. So I just looked it up to fact check myself, and it was Reggie Leach and Yari Curry who have the record uh, tied with one another. So that's an interesting thing. It is not Brian Leach, uh, like I said. So, yeah. Um, I I think Drysaddle can do it if the Oilers can push through their current battle against the Vegas Golden Knights. Obviously, it's not going to get any easier for them with the potential to play one of Seattle or Dallas. And both of those teams are playing incredibly well, although Seattle is outplaying the um, Dallas Stars. I almost said the Dallas, uh, I think Dallas, Texas is what I almost said there. Uh, that's my bad. For, for the playoff updates, I don't have the updated stat leaders at the moment, but yeah. You have the Florida Panthers who are up three to nothing on the Toronto Maple Leafs. And they they're one win away from getting a uh, halfway to the Stanley Cup this year, which is something they haven't done in a while. And they were outscoring the Maple Leafs with all of their carryover this is all carryover carried over stats I should mention is the Panthers have scored 36 times in the playoffs to the Leafs' 29 goals. All of the other stats, like shots on goal, are very even. Uh, the Panthers lead 304 to 281 shots on goal, which is paying off for them tremendously, as you can tell in these games. It's when they're shooting, they're getting pucks on net, which is helpful in the playoffs. They're also using their body to get the puck. The one thing that the Leafs aren't doing 
uh, well like the Panthers are is hitting to get the puck. They're just hitting to hit. They're leading by two. Uh, they have 387 to the Panthers 385 hits. But the Panthers are hitting in more effective areas. They're hit, stripping the Leafs of the puck and they're preventing them from uh, creating high danger chances. And that's what they're good at. And it's really paying off. And yeah, um, for the Canes and Devils series, it's obviously 2-1 to one for the Canes right now. But they got destroyed yesterday 8-4. to four. There is only one thing I want to mention though is... The Carolina Hurricanes scored three shorthanded goals, and I don't think any team in the league uh, up until this point, in league history I should actually mention, has scored three shorthanded goals in the playoffs and still lost. And last night it was a wild, uh, just tire fire for that game. Is Everybody just wanted to go at each other. It was getting very tense, and the Devils embarrassed Carolina there's nothing else to say there and yeah um, shots on goal are even goals are even 31 to 27 in favor of the Devils for shots on goal or for goals my bad shots on goal the uh, Carolina Hurricanes lead uh, not by very much I think by 12 or so they have 298 to the Devils, 286 shots on goal. Hits are also quite even at 291 to 274 for the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, yeah, it's just been a very, uh, not level-headed series, but these teams are doing a lot more elsewhere. They're not just hitting and trying to put pucks on net all the time which is something you want to do in, in the playoffs but they're playing very effectively especially with blocking shots and they're doing they're blocking shots with purpose because they're keeping the shot count down is what uh, one thing I notice and uh, nobody has more blocked shots in the Eastern Conference or I think in the entire playoffs at the moment yeah the entire playoffs for who's left the Leafs have 191 blocked shots Yep, they have still lost three straight games, which is kind of concerning, because it's... What are you blocking shots for, then? If you cannot block some crucial ones. Um, the Devil... Or not the Devils. The Vegas Golden Knights and the Edmonton Oilers series is tied 1-1 apiece. However, the Oilers are outscoring the Vegas Golden Knights with 21... Or 32 goals to Vegas's 21. Shots on goal are also a little bit lopsided. Edmonton has 275 to Vegas's 219. Um, obviously, that's going to be a big uh, factor tonight. Is if Vegas can get some shots on goal, that'll be good. And they got to stay out of the box because the Oilers are 12 for 23 on the power play so far. Vegas is 5 for 23. It's a big. It's kind of a big thing in the playoffs to kill penalties, and the one thing that did um, the one thing that did the Minnesota Wild in in the first round was their inability to kill a power play or kill a penalty. And anytime they got a uh, power play, is they couldn't capitalize. That's kind of what did the Avalanche in last series, uh, most mostly 
is I think the Avalanche were like 1 for 18 or 2 for 18 the last series. It was not a good uh, not a good series for the Avs. The defending cup champions and yeah. Uh, the Oilers are out shooting the Golden Knights at 300 or out hitting the Golden Knights at 310 to 293. We already kind of went over power play but block shots and turnovers are kind of even. Edmonton has 86 turnovers to Vegas's 56. But uh, one thing I noticed in the last game is anytime the Vegas Golden Knights turn over the puck against the Oilers, it usually leads to Dreisaitl doing something. And it's it's not a good look for Vegas when you, ha when you have the lowest uh, turnover count in the playoffs so far. And you might lose the series because when you turn the puck over, it is a like it's a critical error. Um, for the Seattle Kraken and Tex or Dallas Stars, not the Texas Stars. For that series, Seattle is leading two to one, and goals are even. Seattle leads by one at thirty-two to thirty-one. Shots on goal and hits are incredibly lopsided. I tried to check if I miscounted, but yeah, Dallas doesn't dump a lot of pucks on net, apparently. And Seattle has 306 shots on goal to Dallas's 188 shots on goal. For hits, Seattle leads with 401 hits to 223. It's, Seattle is playing like a playoff team that wants to win this year. Their stats are showing it. It's incredible. I didn't think a team was going to hit 400 hits until the uh, conference final, but I was wrong. Um, Seattle has put almost 300 hits up in, I think, six games or so, which is absurd. They had a 70-hit game. Vegas and Winnipeg, if they would have went seven, I think Vegas would have uh, walked into the semifinals with at least 400 hits because there was a couple of games there. In games one and two, I think it was, of that series where Vegas and Winnipeg hit each other almost 150 times. There was one game where it was, I think, 90 per team, and then, and then the following game was about 60 or 70 in that ballpark. Um, one big thing is Vegas needs to kind of stop playing this up-in-your-face up kind of hockey because they're getting a lot of roughing calls now, and it's brutal for them. They walked into this series with, I think, six or seven and now their total count is up to 13 it's not a good luck for them that's where they're getting called the most if they tame if they don't play i'm not saying don't play with your heart on your sleeve but i'm all i'm saying here is you're gonna get called for it by the refs and that's what the refs are doing um the vander kane got under a lot of vegas players skin last game and man it was one of those one of those games where you look at and you got to say to yourself is like is it worth it is it worth letting a guy who's there and yeah we're losing or like we just got our asses handed to us in front of our home fans but you're not like I get it playing with heart and whatnot but that's you got called so much last game and you I think Edmonton scored at least two power play goals and they had tons of chances to run run that score right up. Um, Evan Bouchard 
uh, scored one of the first goals. Dreisaitl got a couple in there, and then McDavid followed it up with two more. As where in the 8-4 game, it feels like everybody and their dog in the Devils-Carolina game scored. But yeah, um, it's been a lot of uh, hockey going recently. And for the Leafs, I've been watching this series. I watched the entire Tampa series, and I've watched the entire Florida series. I've noticed a few things when it comes to the Leafs, and their big players aren't showing up. And I'm not saying this to run run them into the ground here, and just because everybody's saying it. I'm not hopping on some sort of bandwagon when it comes to negativity in the Leafs, but um, it seemed like Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews were almost afraid of the Florida Panthers last night. And that comes for Matthews. It took him 45 minutes to register res- uh, register a shot on goal. Whereas Mitch Marner would get the puck and he almost wanted to just give it away before he uh, before he had the chance of doing something with the puck. He didn't. It's almost like he was afraid of getting hurt uh, on the play. And that's not the way you want your top guys to be playing. It is certainly a way that you do not want your uh, like your leaders on your team to be modeling to these younger players that you're bringing in. Because like Matthew Nyes, if you were four and one with him in uh, like you have won four games and lost one game with Nyes in the lineup, and you have lost four games and won zero with Nyes not in the lineup. And the Nyes thing. I'm looking at this. I watched the game. I wrote an article on it. You can read up on it and my thoughts about that play. But Sam Bennett drove his head into the ice, which caused a concussion for the rookie. I am not one for saying that something should have been addressed last night, but there was multiple challenges, it seemed, to Sam Bennett last night. That just... Bennett was willing to, yeah, no, I got hockey to play here. And he shrugged it off, which is not the example you want to set to your rookie guys. Because I'm not saying go jump Sam Bennett, but you have your series on the line now. You're down 3 nothing to the, def- or not the defending, but the former President's Trophy winners. You were down, well, you're down three games to them. To the team that beat a record-setting team, rallied back, came, won it in Game 7 in overtime, and they came into the first game with something to prove. Game 2, you go up 2-0, you get way too comfortable. And then your rookie goes down, the team seems rattled anytime their big guy gets hurt, or any of their big players get hurt. Last night, Joseph Wool had to come in for Ilya Samsonov, who Luke Shen accidentally barreled into, which isn't a good look. And Samsonov is requiring an MRI. It is to be determined if he's going to play on Wednesday night. It is, in my opinion, it's highly unlikely that Samsonov draws in at goal for the Leafs. And it's one of the, I get it. You have these big name 11 million dollar plus forwards who are they're top in scoring for the playoffs so far but you also have these guys who 
when you need them in these critical moments in the game, they're not showing up. Is they're back checking. It's not suspect, but when you need your players to do something on the penalty kill because you have your rookie goaltender in net filling in for your starting goaltender, it's not a good look. Um, Marner turned the puck over, I think, nine, eight or nine times last night. None of them were as bad as O'Reilly's turnover with about five minutes left in the third. And he passed it right to um, Matthew Kachuk, who uh, passed it over to Sam Bennett. Sam Bennett went for an in-between-the-legs goal, which would have been an absolutely crushing goal for the Leafs to give up turnover on. Um, Sam Bennett wasn't addressed in the game. I kind of already mentioned that. But if he would have scored that goal, it would have been a big double bird to the Maple Leafs last night, and I could almost guarantee you that they would have been swept in four to the Florida Panthers if Bennett scored that goal. Um, one thing that I kind of want to say here is you put Wayne Simmons out for warm-ups last night, and then you go 11-7 and and you let Justin Hole draw back in when it should have been Gustafson and Giordano on that third pairing, and Hole should have been sitting last night. You should have ran 12 forwards with Wayne Simmons in the lineup and let Bennett know that he's got to answer for that. Because a lot of us, a lot of us hockey diehards know about the code and whatnot. There's a big push in the game to remove all the physicality, but... Bennett didn't receive any sort of supplemental discipline on this and when you have your department of player safety when he is a part of a group where they have shirts and hats where it's like make uh, make hockey violent again uh that's not a good look when it's supposed to be your department of player safety uh I'm one of those people that who I truthfully think that the NHL could use a change of scenery when it comes to the Department of Player Safety, and I just don't think there is any sort of benefit for a former goon in the league, I don't like using that word, a former tough guy in the league who is known for getting into scraps and all that all the time. I don't think there is any benefit in the league to have this guy as the head of the Department of Player Safety because you get rookies their head gets slammed into the ice and it's concussed them like head contact is something the league is trying to get rid of or minimize it. and yet you have a player in Sam Bennett who drives a player's head into the ice and causes injury he doesn't receive a penalty on the play either and then later he goes and cross-checks Sam, uh, Michael Bunting in the neck and then cross-checks a second time in the higher uh, higher area just under um, just under just under the uh, shoulder blades I could not think of shoulder blades for a second there you have Yes, he got his $5,000 fine for cross-checking because the league is so hell-bent on getting cross-checking out of the game, but 
this isn't protecting your players, especially your younger players. There's a lot. There's a big young audience who is watching hockey, and to set a precedent that you can get tangled up behind the play with another player, drive his head into the ice, and receive no uh, supplemental discipline for it is frankly um, upsetting. It doesn't set a good precedent for younger viewers of the game. And another thing I want to point out is you have a former referee on Twitter by the name of Tim Peel who is saying that this stuff, like, oh, I don't see why it would get called. It's just rough stuff in the playoffs when he knows full well that it's it's not a hockey play when you purposely drive a guy's head into the ice. And a lot of people are going to come at me for saying, or for talking about this so specifically, and yes, I know Sam Lafferty accidentally, or not, I know Sam Lafferty drove a guy into the boards and whatnot and didn't get anything, and I'm not saying that offsets what happened, is there needs to be some sort of consistency with the Department of Player Safety, the head of the Department of Player Safety more specifically, and for your young viewers to see that if they get hit in the head, if they make it into this league because there's a small percentage of players who make it into the National Hockey League and there's a larger percentage who don't and if you want to appeal this game to the younger viewers you need to kind of be a little more consistent when it comes to player safety you can't spin the wheel all the time and with that I'm going to kind of move on because I'm getting myself really worked up here. <laughs> kind of dragged that out a lot longer than I wanted to. Um, yeah. Gerard Gallant and the New York Rangers agreed to mutually part ways. And yeah, since 2009, the New York Rangers has gone through four coaches now. It's kind of a carousel on no coach lasting uh, longer than five years there frankly kind of funny in my opinion Elaine Vigneault just I think just barely was under the five-year mark but yeah they will be looking for a fifth head coach in the uh, since 2009 and the Rangers coaches do have been fired or in quotes mutually parted uh, parting of ways the order is John Tortorella who was hired in 2009 and then fired in 2013 Elaine Vigneault, who was fi- hired in 2013, promptly fired in 2018. David Quinn, hired in 2018 and fired in 2022. Or 2021, I that is a typo in my end. And then finally, Gerard Gallant, who was hired in 2021. And just recently, they quote-unquote mutually parted ways with Gerard Gallant. And... I put quotes on that because the media was on his ass about his job, is if he if he feels any pressure, and Glant was quite upset with the media for them for them questioning his like his job security and all this stuff. And frankly, I would be too if you have people from the media. And yes, I understand that the media is there to report and write stories and all this stuff. I frankly didn't see the need to ask Gerard Gallant after being eliminated in the playoffs 
like, oh, do you think you're going to be back as uh, Rangers head coach, or do you think they're going to fire you, or things like that? There's a time and a place to ask uh, people questions, and I don't think when Jared Gallant was asked that question, he wanted, I don't think he wanted to be asked if he thought he was going to be fired or not, frankly. And kind of just going with the whole carousel, um, it is very likely that the New York Rangers are going to push to see if uh, Joel Quenville is going to be reinstated or could be reinstated, and I know a lot of hockey fans are not going to like it, and for a good point, or for good reason too, it wouldn't be a good look on the Rangers to try and get uh, Joel Quenville reinstated to become the next head coach of the New York Rangers. But at the end of the day, hockey is hockey. They have their little meetings, and they have their uh, they have their little not group, but they have uh, cards that they want to play at certain times, things that they want to do. And before I wrap up the episode, the Bedard Draft Lottery odds. So I have a two screenshots from Tankathon. I'm going to explain the odds and then go to the order. Is on this is via tankathon.com. You can search it up and read this for yourself as well if you want to follow along with me. Determining the NHL draft order. Number one, all teams missing the playoffs are in the draft lottery, obviously. Number two, teams with the least points get more chances at winning the lottery. Number three, the first. The first overall pick is awarded by a drawing of ping pong balls. A team can only jump 10 spots. So the only so only the top 11 teams are eligible for the first pick. If a team in the uh, 12 to 16 range wins the first drawing, the first pick will be awarded to the worst team. The 12 to 16 seed team that won the first drawing is also locked into their new position. A second drawing is held to determine the other lottery winner. Like the first drawing, the second winner can only jump 10 spots, but this time it is using the reseeded order following the first drawing. The second drawing will not affect the teams, team or teams with locked in positions from the first drawing. If a 10 spot jumps, if a 10 spot jump is to a pick that is already locked in, this team will receive the next available pick. Five teams are only allowed to improve their positioning via lottery twice in a five-year uh, twice in a five-year period beginning with the 2022 lottery so Montreal if they win draft lottery they're ineligible to win draft lottery for a few years ties are broken by teams total number of regulation wins regulation and non-chuno overtime wins and head-to-head if still tied Playoff teams that did not win their divisions and did not make the conference finals sorted by points are assigned the next picks outside of the lottery and whatnot. Playoff teams that won their divisions and did not make the conference finals sorted by points are assigned the following picks. The conference final losers are uh, sorted by points are assigned uh, pick 29 and 30. And then the Stanley Cup runner-up is assigned pick 31 and uh, the person or the team that wins the stanley cup this year will get pick number 32 and for the draft order as of right now the best odds for the top three in order are anaheim columbus and chicago 
Anaheim, basically if a team from the 12 to 16 slot, which is Arizona, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Nashville, or Calgary, if any of those five teams win in the first drawing, then Anaheim automatically is guaranteed to get Connor Bedard. Um, for the 1 to 11, we went through the first three, but I'll just go over it again. Number one, Anaheim. Number two, Columbus. Number three, Chicago. Number four, San Jose. Number five, Montreal. Number six, Arizona. Number seven, Philadelphia. Number eight, Washington. Number nine, Detroit. Number 10, St. Louis. And at the very end, number 11, Vancouver. I kind of emphasize Vancouver there because they have a 3% chance at getting the first overall pick in the draft. Connor Bedard has known to be a huge, huge uh, Canucks fan. It would be an incredible story for the Vancouver Canucks to get the first overall pick when the guy who the guy who is go projected not projected the guy who is a lock to go first overall is a huge Canucks fan and yeah so with that kind of said I'm gonna get into the announcement uh, that I kind of mentioned at the start of the episode if that is still in your mind obviously and so I've accepted a position as a podcaster and writer with inside the rink I don't have plans to stop producing the Jacko Media podcast. However, episodes may become a little less frequent as time kind of goes on and as I sort of just navigate just balancing schoolwork, uh, work for Inside the Rink, and now the podcast. Both podcasts, I should say. Please go support Inside the Rink's great community of writers. Support the many articles that I have posted personally. I try and get one to two up per day. Sometimes it can be one, sometimes it can be more than two. And yeah, uh, support the many articles that the other great writers have posted. And follow the Taking Flight podcast on Inside the Rinks podcast network. In, uh, Taking Flight will be a coverage of the Winnipeg Jets, most uh, specifically. I will also be covering the Manitoba Moose of the American Hockey League just to kind of keep up with the system, the players that the Jets bring up and send down, the players that they sign, just following all things Jets and Manitoba Moose. I will dedicate part of the podcast for uh, other league stuff as needed, but mostly we will be uh, sticking to the Winnipeg Jets and talking all things Winnipeg Jets. Um, the Moosehead segment will be specifically for the Manitoba Moose, not covering the games, but just giving a brief overview of the games and what's happening down in the farms, uh, farm team for the Winnipeg Jets. And so, yeah, I thank you for your support, and I want to thank the Jansen boys for letting me use their song, One for the Road. Go check them out on Spotify. You can listen to their music. I will link them uh, in the episode description, which is probably a longer description, so you might have to scroll a bit. And yeah, yeah, thank you for listening. And I will see you next time. Life that I left is far behind. 
Believing I could find some peace of mind No strings attached, no contract signed Just a place for me to unwind We keep on walking All I need 